it's time for your weekly dose of nostalgia. I am Milo Dennison, and joining me this week, filling in for Jamie, is Kahal Feeney, my uh, pal and co-host of the No Budget Filmcast. Hello. Thanks for joining me. So I want to talk about the Good Friday Agreement, which was signed April 10th of 1998. Since it's kind of an Irish thing, you're an Irish person that I know, but to be clear to the audience, you're not a historian, and you're actually not from Northern Ireland. You're from... The Republic of Ireland. Yeah. But you were around that time. Do you remember, like, do you have any memories of, like, when that happened? Definitely. Like, my formative years were at the same time as the Troubles, like the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Uh, I suppose I, I would have developed a sort of a consciousness of it from the late 70s on. So for us, it was it was a, a, a nightly news item, like the latest killing or the latest bombing in Northern Ireland. It seemed at the time that it was an intractable problem that that was never going to end and uh for for us it, it was like a foreign country like it, well, people from abroad probably don't didn't know it at the time or you know I would maybe on that probably was different on the border counties but uh say when i was dublin and further south it was just something on tv you know it wasn't it wasn't something that impacted our daily lives at all a little bit of history audience for anyone that might not know so when Ireland gained independence in 1922. Is that right? I think it was 2122 ish. I think that, I think I think it was the, the the treaty took place in 21, and then it was ratified in 22. I think when that happened, Northern Ireland, which was primarily Protestant, decided that they wanted to stay as part of the UK, and the Republic of Ireland, primarily Catholic fought for independence. And I'm mentioning religion because it was really primarily on religious divides, a certain level of loyalty and religion. However, of course, in Northern Ireland, you still had plenty of Catholics who felt that they should be part of a united Ireland. So what happened was, after the the war for independence, to my understanding, most of it was all right up until kind of like the 1960s. And then a lot of violence started to break out between the two sides up in Northern Ireland, the the side fighting for independence and the side, side fighting to stay until we get to the Good Friday Agreement in 1998. From your recollections, does that sound about right? Well, there's, there's kind of the, there's the old Irish joke about uh, somebody asking for directions and then the person giving directions would say, well, I wouldn't start from here. So uh, it is there is with Ireland and Irish history, it's a question of where you start. I mean, we talk about 800 years, 800 years of occupation and oppression. So I suppose in in in, in modern historical terms, the, the sort of political situation that we have now probably would have been formulated around the beginning of the last century. So um, there was you know, various attempts at independence, fighting for independence over the years. And... The sort of the one that you could say ultimately was successful was the nine, it was started in nineteen sixteen, the nineteen sixteen rising, which was which was suppressed pretty quickly, but then what happened was the British government executed the ringleaders, and uh, that really changed public opinion uh, against you know not that they were for the British government but it sort of at the time I don't think people were were there was that much support for it. They went to the execution and, you know, it became retrospectively a lot more support for it. And then in, in the 1918 elections, which was part of the UK-wide elections in, in Ireland anyway, 
they were overwhelming, overwhelmingly uh, Sinn Féin government was voted, uh, you know, politicians were elected. And this was the old Sinn Féin. So not, what's, not uh, what's, what's Sinn Féin for us Americans that have no idea what that is? Yeah, I think it's we ourselves, you know, so everybody Irish speakers out there. And it was the it was basically the pro Irish Independent Party, right? It was the pro Irish Independent Party, which was started by a guy called Arthur Griffith. So then, after that, after that election, you had what it was the Irish War of Independence, which was a sort of a guerrilla war against the British occupation in Ireland, and one of the key figures there was Michael Collins, and so Michael Collins and Ava Eamon de Valera came to the fore around this period. So this brought the British government to the negotiation table. They negotiated the Anglo-Irish Agreement at the time. Then this was there was a vote in the Irish Parliament, and there was a split in the Irish Parliament. You had a pro-treaty and anti-treaty, so that caused a civil war, and this civil war broke. You know, lasted a couple of years, uh, I think, and uh, you know the treaty stood. I guess the Anglo-Irish Treaty stood. From what I remember, I think we were still part of. I think we still had to swear allegiance to the king, for instance, and that was what that was one of the reasons why. There was such division between the pro and anti treaty societies. Was this idea of allegiance to the king, and uh, I think like we, you know, Irish ports had to be available to the British Navy and stuff like that. And then uh, maybe in the late nineteen thirties, we just declared independence. But around the time of at, at the time of um, at the Anglo-Irish Agreement, the first Anglo-Irish Agreement, the idea of Northern Ireland, you know, it was it was just an idea. So. Uh, what they did was they parked the idea of Northern Ireland. They there was a commission, the Border Commission. Then they came up with the border, which is what the border as we know now, and that was to create this new entity, Northern Ireland, and ensure ensure a Protestant majority. And also, it had to be, you know, small enough so that it'd be a Protestant majority, but large enough so that it was economically viable. So um, then, for like the IRA did exist. In a, you know, at a very, very low level for about the next 50 years, and they carried out some, you know, a few actions, but uh, nothing like the level that was to happen post-1969. And then uh, around that time, then, 1969, there was a a civil rights movement kind of started up in Northern Ireland. They, they, they would, there was a lot of discrimination and prejudice against the Catholic minority in Northern Ireland. It was set up as a sort of a, a Protestant state for Protestant people. And they ensured that uh, it, it, it was their country, really, you could say. Uh, so there was certain jobs which were closed off to Catholics uh, in areas of public housing, for instance. There was always priority given to Protestants over Catholics. Uh, and then they had gerrymandering, which is organising electoral constituencies to make sure you had a majority, uh, you know, for your party. So this kind of thing, you know, definitely, definitely happened. Catholics are second-class citizens. And at the same time, the IRA, uh, they had a split in the IRA. So there was some one half of it uh, wanted, to, wanted to go down the more political democratic route and another half wanted to continue the armed campaign. They be, so they became the provisional IRA. So we called them the provost. And then they sort of, latched on to, you could say, you know, the civil rights movement and really kind of what we call the, the modern period of the violence in Northern Ireland, which we call the Troubles started, which lasted from about 1969 to 
I guess, the Good Friday Agreement in 1998. Yeah, according to what I've read here, is like roughly 3,500 people died. Uh, and deaths were attributed to the to the fight between the two sides. They there was plenty of violence on both sides towards each side. Yeah, so I mean, just to give you a more I remember now, sort of a breakdown of the uh, the different sides. So I guess from sort of the the military point of view, if you want to call it that, you had like the IRA, and then you had offshoots of the IRA, like you had another organization called the INLA. The Irish National Liberation Association, maybe. And uh, I think there was something, I think there even was an IPLO or something like that. And then you had the, the UVF, the Ulster Volunteer Force, and the UDA. And then above that, you would have had, well, obviously the British Army were there. Then the, the police force in Northern Ireland at the time was the RUC, the Ulster Constabulary. Well, that was considered a Protestant or, you know, police force. Then politically, you would have had on the, the nationalist side, uh, there would have been the SDLP, which was the largest political nationalist party. And when I say nationalist, that means a party that would have been politically in favour of the United Ireland. So uh, when I use the term nationalist, that's what I'm referring to. And they would represent the Catholic community by and large. And throughout the period of the Troubles, they were like the, the, the largest nationalist party in Northern Ireland. Then you had Sinn Féin, and then on the other side, you would have had the UUP, the Ulster Unionist Party, and the Democratic Unionist Party. So at the time of the Good Friday Agreement in 1998, the two main political parties were on both sides were the SDLP and the UUP. And they would have represented sort of the moderate middle ground of both communities. But they have since been superseded by, on both sides, respectively, the Sinn Féin and the DUP. Now, some some of your listeners might be familiar with a figure called Ian Paisley. So Ian Paisley was a member of the DUP, and he was very much seen as a sort of a, a vitriolic opponent of anything at all that hinted at any you know any concessions to the Catholic minority. And he the DUP, uh, he you know he led the DUP. And they they opposed the Good Friday Agreement, in actual fact. They only sort of came around when they became the dominant party. So before the referendum, there was a closed border between Ireland and Northern Ireland, right? Like you had to actually like show your passport or could you drive back and forth? No, 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 no. It was an open so, border. So um, yeah, that was, that was you know, uh, there was army checkpoints actually at the border. I remember driving across at one time. But after the Good Friday Agreement, that was cleared. And actually, in fact, since the time of our common membership of the European Union, so there was no there was no economic reason for a border, really, because um, it was free trade between Northern Ireland and Southern Ireland. And then after, you know, after, particularly after like the Good Friday Agreement, all the army checkpoints went. So it was it was you know, free movement. And one one was something that came out of the Good Friday Agreement was that anybody. It was born in Northern Ireland, could identify as being Irish or British or both. So you could you could get an Irish passport if you wanted. So you could live in Derry or Belfast or South Armagh or Toronto or anywhere, and you could hold an Irish passport, and you you could maybe feel Irish, you know, uh, even if technically legally you were living in the UK. But I mean, you know, it was an open border, small enough country, 
So psychologically, you know, you could you could you could feel more Irish. But the, the problem with the referendum was that if the UK, which they did, left the European Union, then you'd have different regulatory systems on both sides of the border. So you would have to have you'd have to have a border, you know, for checking the flow of goods, for instance. And this was something that was brought up before the referendum, and it was ignored. It was ignored by the pro-Brexit party, and they was just, yeah, it won't be a problem. It'll be there'll be magic technical solutions, but there isn't, and that is that's something that still hasn't been resolved. I'm, I'm not I'm not totally sure, you know, how how is how it's working, but that's the problem, you know, and it was always going to be a problem. Yeah, that's that's why it's been so many years since Brexit, and they're still trying to work this stuff out. <laughs> Like there's still a lot of animosity between the extremes of both communities who, who I suppose have memories of what happened during the Troubles. And if, if you ever go to Belfast, you can get a tour, a taxi tour of Belfast. And, uh, you know, they'll take you around sort of the, the, the historical trouble spots like the Falls Road and the Shankill and David Flats and so on. And they'll show you, you know, scenes of atrocities that would have taken place, I guess. But also, they have these things called peace walls, right? And peace walls are basically big, huge, massive walls that are put up to divide two communities to stop them you know, killing each other. There are more peace walls now than there were at the time of the Good Friday Agreement. So, you know, it's just, there's, there's still a lot of friction in there. And there's a lot of things to be sorted out. And there's still a lot of separation between the communities. So one, one thing... Uh, which I think needs to happen, and I'm not the only person saying this, is sort of a co-education. So at the moment, you still have Protestant schools for Protestant kids and Catholic schools for Catholic kids. And... Yeah, it's interesting um, that it, that's still a thing, that there's still this all this animosity between the two sides, and especially religious-based, right? Because religion, in a lot of ways, doesn't have as much of a hold on our society anymore, uh, but still up there, it's those those two sides and you know thinking like well could the troubles happen again or could any of this start up again it's entirely possible that something some match could light another fight between the two sides uh, especially because i think people tend to not necessarily learn from history even though they're supposed to so now you've got a generation of people that were born during peace and might not remember might not or definitely don't remember how bad things were before which could then lead them to that point. Yeah, definitely. Like, just to pick up on your point about religion, like it's never never really about religion, it's more about identity. Mm. So religion was a way of identifying people, but it wasn't a question of religion per se. And, you know, you're right about people forgetting history. And what you have now seems the generation have grown up in peace, that they look on it, through the lens of history, they see it in historical terms, you know, they see the troubles as something that happened back then. And it, it lacks a sort of, you know, I don't know, an immediacy or, or people. I mean, I, I lived in the south of Ireland, so you know, I wasn't, wasn't directly affected by it, but even still, there was a rawness to seeing, you know, on the news people being killed, people being bombed, murdered. So we have that memory, but. People today don't have the memory, and they might say they might put it in the context of, you know, I don't know, like the the War of Independence hundred years ago, or the you know the seventeen ninety eight rebellion, or something like that. 
but it does, as you say, create a likelihood that it can be repeated because, I mean, there is still a very, very sort of small rump of republicanism, military, military republicanism active in Northern Ireland. And they might look at it and go, well, the IRA, the provost of the 70s, 80s and 90s, uh, they were reviled, you know, for the most part they were, you know, in, North, in the south, south of Ireland, definitely. And the majority, for the, you know, for the majority of Catholics in Northern Ireland, they were too. But they might say, well, look, look at them now, you know, they're being rehabilitated in the eyes of young people today. So, you know, that could be us sometime in the future. History will judge us, you know, in a, in a better life. Yeah, we'll find out. But let's talk specifically about the agreement itself. So some key players in the US, we had Bill Clinton, who was the president at the time, and his uh, special envoy, George Mitchell. On the UK side, you had Tony Blair, who was the PM. And then on the Irish side, you had Bertie Ahern. Bertie Ahern. Ahern. And so it kind of got to a point after all the like bombings and fightings and shootings and stuff like that, that hit into the late 90s. There just there was a bit of a political willpower and desire amongst the people to really end all the violence. Yeah. Well, if you forgive me, I'll just do a little bit more history. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the Good Friday Agreement, this is just a, a slightly earlier precursor to that, was a Downing Street Declaration in 1993. And at the time, that was the British Prime Minister was John Major and the Irish Prime Minister was Albert Reynolds. So they... A lot of a lot of the framework for what you know, followed in the Good Friday Agreement was laid down at the time, and the IRA then agreed to it based on the declaration and the sort of the, the draft document that was drawn up. Uh, they agreed to a ceasefire, and that held uh, for about a year and a half or so. But I think some hardliners in the IRA decided they were being strung along, and there was a a bomb let off in Canary Wharf in London. And that sort of brought the thing to a halt. And then in 1997, you had two elections, one in the UK, one in Ireland, brought in Tony Blair over in England and Bertie Ahern here. I think particularly Tony Blair, he wanted to revive the talks. Could be wrong about that now, but they did. And um, uh, there was, I think there was a bit more urgency this time and there was a lot more, a lot of willingness on all sides to get it done. They're like, okay, we've been doing this for the past thirty years, and uh, nothing's happening except for more violence. So maybe let's try yeah. something different. Yeah, yeah. You know, you do. You have to have been secret talks had gone on, and you know, the IRA they were uh, had a lot of high level infiltration as well, and I suppose maybe the leadership were getting to a certain age, they wanted, they wanted to see some sort of progress themselves. But yeah, so, you know, you had, you had the Good Friday Agreement and uh, yeah, as you say, you had the involvement of the US, um, George Mitchell and Bill Clinton. And uh, I suppose Irish America, really, they brought Irish America because like, there was an organisation in America, USA, I should call it, uh, called NORAID, which was a yeah, an Irish Republican fundraising organization. And a, a lot of money that flowed into the coffers of the IRA came from them. So the Irish American constituency, uh, you know, was, was 
in, was important as well to support in this wind. There a lot went into the talks and the agreements because a lot came out of it. Like you, like you already said, policing reform, the changes to the, how the Northern Irish govern themselves, changes to border rules, changes to uh, you know, all these integrations that were happening, and of course, stopping stopping the violence, which is hard because if you grow up hating another side of something or certain people or being taught to not like this group to then have to be told, okay, now, okay, you need to get along now. And it's like, well, wait a minute. You just spent since you know, however many years telling me that they're the bad guys. And now I'm supposed to suddenly get along with bad guys. So a lot went into this and it, and it was passed by a referendum, right? Ireland, the Republic of Ireland voted and Northern Ireland voted separately as yeah. a referendum approving this. So to get everybody to agree upon that is pretty impressive. And from a Republic of Ireland point of view, there was two articles in our constitution, articles two and three, I don't know specifically what, what they stated, but the net effect of it was that our constitution claimed ownership over Northern Ireland. Oh, so the Irish constitution had to change and say, we don't actually claim ownership over Northern Ireland? Yeah, you know, unless by consent of people in both Northern Ireland and Southern Ireland. Mm. I suppose you had to you had to bring people along. You had to be able to make concessions, uh, you know, concessions on all sides. So I suppose with any good negotiations, not everybody is fully happy with the outcome. That's how you know it was a good negotiation. Nobody gets everything that they want. But ultimately, people were, were just sick of the violence in the end and they just... They didn't want to continue for another 25 or 30 years. I remember when I moved to Ireland, Ireland, my first month there, I'm like, oh, I'm going to go up to Belfast. I want to check out the murals and see the sites. And it was quite interesting to see all these remnants from that time period still there, reminding people of the history of the place. Yeah. Just like um, the Irish rugby player, Brian O'Driscoll, he did a documentary recently and it was about the um it was about the Northern Ireland Southern Ireland relationship in the context of rugby because the rugby team was an all as an all Ireland team. And even during the height of the troubles, you would have had players you know from Northern Ireland playing in the Irish team. And actually two of them, Philip Matthews and Nigel Carr, they were caught up in a an assassination attempt. And actually a successful assassination attempt against I think it was a judge when they were crossing the border and their car was hit. And they, you know, they, they were, they were, they were injured. I think, and it was three of them. Sorry, it was David Irvine in the car as well, and uh, they survived anyway. But I think, I think uh, one of them, anyway, he, he, he kind of ended his career more or less. But um, Brian O'Driscoll, he, he did this Black Caps tour, and he was the man stopped. He went up to this peace wall, and he, he was looking up, and uh, he had, I think, he had a bottle of water in his hand, you know, and he said, "It's, it's quite a." Yeah, it'd be quite a throw to get it over the wall. And the, the, the cab driver says, no, you, you can't hold it like that. You know, because if you hold it like that, the petrol will spill out. So you have to kind of hurl it, you know. <laughs> oh, the cab driver's giving him points on how to throw yeah. his Molotov exactly. cocktail. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. What, what's, your, what's your memory of that day, like when it was passed? Do you have a memory of that day? Was that like a key moment in your youth where you see the news or vote on it? Were you old enough to vote at the time? I was, yeah, 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 definitely. Um, well, I'll tell you one thing about the Good Friday Agreement, uh, which I also find kind of amusing, 
in a way is that it has two names. It is, I think it's officially called the Belfast Agreement. I'm not sure. So if you're a unionist, you call it the Belfast Agreement. And if you're, you know, Irish or nationalist, you call it the Good Friday Agreement. So it's almost that they can't, you know, they can't even agree on the name of the agreement. But uh, yeah, I, I do, I do remember it. Like, I mean, it wasn't it, because it sort of it was it was happening and it was dragging on for so long. On, you you couldn't imagine them not getting over the line on this one. So you know, it was it was a big moment, definitely. But I suppose as as a yeah, you know, it didn't it wouldn't have had the same immediate impact. I guess something like nine eleven, you know, nine eleven. Uh, but still, I mean, yeah, it was it was definitely a a very very significant moment in Irish history. Um, and the two leaders of the two main parties, so Seamus Mal, not Seamus Mallon, John Hume. I should have mentioned John Hume earlier. So he was the leader of the of the SDLP, and you know, he he would have been very much a sort of a a political leader of democratic nationalism in Northern Ireland. And on the other side, then you had, I can know, David Trim, David Trim. So David Trim, well, he was the, he was the leader of the the Ulster Unionist Party, and uh, John Hume was the leader of the SELP, and they were uh, they were both jointly you know, uh, awarded the Nobel Peace Prize mm-hmm. after it. But um, yeah, that like it, it wasn't really until there was a lot of, even after that there was still a lot of hurdles to be crossed. With the with the agreement, one of one of the parts of the agreement was the way the new devolved government was structured. So you had guaranteed sharing of power. So it wasn't the case that you had an election and the party that got the most votes, they formed a government. So you had the two largest parties had to sort of share government together and uh, divide ministries accordingly. I think it was called the De Hunt system. And uh, the leader of the first and the biggest party they were given the the title of the first minister, and then the second large party was the I don't know what they call the second minister actually, but um they were I think they had equal you know status or equal power, so you, like, yeah yeah after after the agreement became the implementation of the agreement, and so you had things like you know policing and 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 also you you would have had um some sort of Irish involvement, Republic of Ireland government in the running of Northern Ireland, which the DUP were, you know, totally opposed to. So there was a lot of like unhappiness, I guess, about the way things were working out. And, you know, yeah, when you have an opposition, they can eat away. And eventually they did more or less, the DUP particularly destroyed the the Unionist Party. And you you could say the same by Sinn Féin and the SDLP. And that's that's the way it still is now. And you've had that you've had the stormant collapse more and more on more than one occasion. Um, and it's actually it's um, it's not in session and it hasn't been for about two years now. So it's it's not things aren't really working seamlessly, and you know, Brexit is one of the one of the reasons for that. So it, it is, I suppose, to an extent, being run by Westminster now. But I mean, it's not as if it, Everything's been been solved. It's, yeah, it's still, it's still a, a work in progress kind of a thing. Yeah, yeah. Well, at least the violence has stopped, anyways. So that's good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And one thing that came out of the Good Friday Agreement too is so you had all these bombings and killings, 
But part of the deal was that a lot of these prisoners that had been captured for doing these murders and stuff like that were let go. They were let free as part of the deal. There were, yeah, there was, there was a few contentious issues to be resolved, and that was one of them. And I suppose two other ones would have been decommissioning. So the IRA had to decommission all their weapons, and that was done in secret, by the way. They they brought a guy over from Canada, John de Chasselin, and uh, he, he verified the destruction, I think. Anyway, whatever it was, because they had these secret bunkers all over the place. So he... You know, he, he he was the one that witnessed it and signed off on it. And then there was the ref, reforming of policing, I guess. You know, they, they were sort of three of the main issues. And I, for the nationalist community, they had to, they, I suppose one of the key planks of it was that there had to be some sort of pathway laid towards the possibility of United Ireland in, 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 a, in such a scenario where the, uh, I think the British Secretary of State for Northern Ireland, I think, if they believe at any time that there is a potential majority in favour of a united Ireland, then they can call they can call a referendum, and that would that would referendum there would be a referendum in Northern Ireland, and in Southern Ireland, both of them would have to be passed. Uh, all right, well we're about out of time here. You can check out me and Kahal on the No Budget Filmcast. Thanks for the history lesson, Kahal. Even though you're not a historian, you're clearly well informed on the subject. Yeah, I apologize for any you know mistakes. Send, send the angry uh, comments to me, not Kahal, and, yeah. and I'll make sure to respond. To that. And with that, we'll say we're out of here like the troubles, gone to hopefully never return again. 